we have an opportunity here to bring presence to the ceremony that is your life. And my invitation to you is to stop whatever you're doing, wherever you are, just for this one precious moment and take a deep breath. Follow the breath into your root point and land yourself right here, right now, into your present moment. And exhale. Welcome to the space where all the magic is happening and prepare yourself to receive the wild, raw expanse that is available inside the dojo that is your life. You are the empowered center point creator of every single experience that you are drawing into your field at this time. When you recognize that and really get that in your bones, you will receive yourself as the magnet for the most perfectly expansive evolutionary curriculum that is precisely crafted for you to evolve beyond what was in order to claim all that is a match to the you who is free. And that is what we are here to do inside the dojo as we explore what it means to live a life beyond the edge. This is a Soulfire production. Hello, dojo family. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. I am so enlivened today to sit with one of my dearest friends and one of the most inspiring women that I know. And I've had a, a front row seat to a large part <laughs> of this woman's journey over the past couple of years, which has been such an honor in one way that I, I, I know the integrity behind the words I'm saying that this is one of the most inspiring women that I know sitting across from me here, Alexandra Roxo, Mm -hmm. who really stands for the way of the open heart. Mm -hmm. And Alexandra, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself, like, you know, introduction, who are you, what's important to you in the world? And, And then I'd like to kind of take the tail of that and like more on a personal level, introduce how I've experienced you. So like book cover introduction, who are yeah. you in the world and like yeah. what really inspires you? Thank you so much for having me first and foremost. I'm yeah. so happy to be here with you. I was looking forward to it as well, just to get to be heart to heart with you. Um, so I am a writer, an author, a teacher and a coach in terms of like the labels of what I do, um, in terms of how I be in this world, I'm a seeker and an explorer. I have been, I think, you know, my whole life, probably for other incarnations as well, but I've been churning on this spiritual path with awareness since I was around 12 and I met my first, um, teacher and I learned at that time that I'm here to do some deep work um, and that I'm in the classroom of life. So more than anything, I'm here in the classroom of life, just like most of us, though you can put whatever frame you like on it. That was the frame that my first teacher, Bobby Drinnen, gave me was like, hey, if you don't get through a classroom, you're going to have to repeat it. <laughs> There's no skipping. <laughs> um 
And, but I spend my days uh, working with women, coaching primarily women, also writing. I have my second book uh, coming out in 2024 called Dare to Feel, which is about the transformational path of the heart. My first book was called Fuck Like a Goddess, Heal Yourself, (laughs) Reclaim Your Voice, Stand in Your Power. And that came out in 2020 and it's about to have its paperback release on the 28th of this month, next week, which is really exciting. And um, I have a podcast as well where I muse and talk to people that I love called Holy Fuck. And it's really an exploration of what is sacred and what is profane and how we define what is sacred in our lives, kind of from the narratives of the past. And as we co-create this new world that we're all in and and, and dreaming up together right now. So mm. That's that's the that's the short version. Uh, well, let's get into the long form. <laughs> so, well, like as you share yourself in that way, I'm just I'm struck by the paradox mm-hmm. of who you are mm-hmm. from like fuck like a goddess mm-hmm. and the study of the profane, right? Yeah. And the willingness to embody the taboo mm-hmm. and to serve as a permission slip Mm -hmm. for the full spectrum feminine. And like, really, when we say the full spectrum feminine, I mean, we got range. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Uh You really bring that and permission to feel Mm -hmm. and the softness of what it takes to truly keep your heart open. No, like no matter what. And as I, we were sharing a little bit before this episode, I was sharing with Alexander some layers uh, of my own personal journey. And as it processes more, I'm sure I'll bring forward some learnings to all of you in future episodes. But one thing I really felt was, wow, how perfect it is that I, we, I get to drop in with you today because Mm -hmm. I've seen the way that you really stand for walking with your heart open, no matter what, no matter how hard it is no matter what you've been through with your family or what you still go through, no matter what you go through on a relationship level, no matter what, like, no matter what Mm -hmm. I watch you again and again, embody like the answer to what would love do. Mm. Sometimes love is fierce and sometimes Mm -hmm. love is sharp and sometimes love is soft and sometimes love is melty and wide open. And I'd love to just start with I I remember like we were discovered, we were on a conversation around like consciousness and heart. And that like, you've, you you were sharing with me that you chose the path of the open heart Mm. that, that, you know, from maybe you could share a little bit about the background where you had a lot of meditation background and those layers and the difference between that and how you're experiencing the choice to Mm. move deeper into embodiment work and the path of the open heart and, and, how that occurs for you actually? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, In Richard Rudd's book, The Venus Sequence, which anyone here who is a Gene Key nerd and um, The Venus Sequence is just such an epic way of understanding how the heart opens and closes. That being said, I have a client of mine. I tried to bring this to her, the, the Venus Sequence, and she was like, I don't want one more random white guy's way of understanding my shadows and myself in my body. And so it's not for everyone, right? Like we have to decide what, whose, whose 
beliefs and ideas and structures of how we perceive ourselves colonize our internal world. Mm -hmm. And so if you only have, you know, a particular um, frame or particular frames of, let's say, Western white men that that create your inner reality of how you perceive your spiritual self, that's probably you want to expand that. So I'm just putting that out there that it's not for that. No system of self-understanding is for everyone. Um, and I think that any system of self-understanding um, may have some gems. And then you also have to check yourself and go, wait a minute, am I defining how I perceive myself? only based on other people's systems. And I think nowadays in the spiritual space, I feel like that can happen a lot where people are defining themselves through human design and jinky or astrology or all of these things that are external wisdom that we apply to ourselves, which can be amazing, but can also cut us off from essentially just understanding ourselves um, self, heart to heart, like, or, uh, self to self, right. Like going into our own practice with ourselves. So I say that as a bit of a preface, um, that any system of understanding I take with, um, a grain of salt. And I really check my body. Like, do I have space for this inside? Do I have space for another system of self-understanding? <laughs> Um, but anyway, I have loved the jinkies. Uh-huh. All of that disclaimer aside, I love the I fucking love the jinkies. Oh my god, um, it's, it's interesting because I'm literally right now going through the Venus sequence retreat that he's oh my god, yeah. I did this, I did the six month one in 2020. Yeah, that's what I'm in right now. So that's been so that specifically the Venus sequence has been super alive. Okay. I love it. I love yeah. it. Anyway, so in the book, and he says that there's two uh, spiritual paths, the path of meditation and the path of love. And I think that's it's a very kind of distillation because there are a, a million trillion spiritual paths, right? So like that's a distillation. But traditionally, the patriarchal kind of ways of spiritual understanding were mainly for men back in the day, you know? So uh, the original yogis that were like thin-bodied Indian men who did asanas, they weren't, those weren't for pregnant bodies or bleeding bodies at the beginning, right? Like way back, the people that could sit on a cushion all day were usually not the ones caring for the babies or um, making food or tending or nurturing or singing, dancing. That was a whole nother sector of reality that was left out of the spiritual uh, experience in a way. But like wink, wink, that is, they were having the most spiritual experiences as well in any culture across this whole planet, where it's like, just because the women perhaps weren't sitting um, in the meditative ceremony or in the prayer with the men in whatever way, they were still, of course, engaged in the deepest spiritual practice of raising children, um, caring for the home, tending, singing, herbs, you know, midwifery, all of these things. So, um, the path of, of, of love, it's like, it's one that women and grandmothers and many indigenous peoples have been living. It's not a spiritual path. It's just living It's life. Right. But from our capitalist mindset, like that's not a, it's, it's not even looked at as a real path in general. Like moms don't get, that doesn't get looked at motherhood as a vocation. Right. It doesn't get looked at as something to be completely as uh, in reverence to as a lawyer, right? Being a stay-at-home mom. It sort of has this connotation. 
oh, you're a stay-at-home mom. No, you're on the path of love. And I'm not saying that's the only way that you can engage with the path of love, but I think Richard Rudd is talking about something ancient. And then for our modern spiritual mind, we're like, spirituality equals meditation, equals breath work, equals this very structured way of connecting with spirit. Yeah. This 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 sparkle, this essence that is within us, that is our our nature that animates this physical body, right? So the the body is mater in Latin, which mm. is the same as mother, essentially the same root, mater, mother. So the body, the form, the the substance is um, has a feminine archetypal nature, whereas the spirit, which is like alcohol, you can call a spirit because it like lifts you right? It sort of like takes you out of this physical density. Um, spirit, right? When people are like overcome by spirit, it's like you're lifted out of this human material space. And that is archetypally more of a masculine experience, right? So um, that would be if you're sitting in meditation, the body goes, you're just quieting the body, right? You're not going, oh, I'm having a cramp here. Oh, Oh, this is tickling me. <laughs> you know, you're learning in a sense to um, quiet the senses as opposed to turn the senses up. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's just fascinating. I think that the tantrics and the East knew how to use the senses um, in a very calculated way. Now in the West, I think we're having and have been having probably since like the 1960s or whatever. Uh, such a deep um, boomerang after so much Puritanism that the fact that there are spiritual and religious experiences that can include the senses and the body and ecstasy of, and sexuality and all of that, it's almost like a, I can feel that it's almost like the the, the pendulum swinging back pretty, pretty full. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, okay, so now in in a certain sphere, anything can be sort of codified yeah. as a spiritual experience. Yes. Yeah. Right. And it's like that I do think will have its its balancing point. Mm-hmm. But to circle back to the path of just love, um, choosing the heart as your central point, choosing compassion, choosing empathy. It's very in the here and now. It's very relational, which is very different than sitting on a meditation cushion or going into hermitage and choosing to be less relational and to quiet. Like the heart in in, in connection is like the most messy, dynamic, intense relational sphere of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting in a way people could consider, oh, you went to go live as a monk or something like that. Wow, how amazing. Mm-hmm. But living amidst people as like a, a lay person, spiritual practitioner in the midst of, of the chaos of the family, the chaos of relationship is like so, mm-hmm. to me, it seems a lot of a bigger experience, but I'm not saying that it has to be compared, but it's a big experience to live with an open heart and to essentially breathe your heart open to all of the suffering of this world and not retreat from the suffering of this world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could talk about this for hours, obviously. Oh, <laughs> so cut me off wherever. You. Keep going. <laughs> I, everything that you're saying is landing in, in deep ways. And I, I really 
am blown away by, you know, the recognition of like the body as the mother, you know, matter, matter, yeah. and the earth body and the earth mother and the differential between the way that the, 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 the physical embodiment practices, the practice of feeling permission to feel as your next book is coming out is a feminine practice. Right. Yeah. And I feel like there's, um, often I've been impacted by certain individual experiences that would say one way is better than the other. Right. And I really don't think that's the truth. I feel like they are both so important to, because you can go, as you said, like where the pendulum is swinging right now in some ways, like you can only, you know, primal roaring is effective for only as long as it's effective, you know, like there's like, there's like, it's like, actually, where is the embodiment work coming from? What is the intention? How anchored in the practice are you, you know? And so I, I feel like there's a shadow expression on each side of it in the same way opposite you can bypass through meditation completely bypass the the human experience and the experience Mm -hmm. of what it means to feel and and the importance of the messages of the feeling state in the heartful experience that's happening all around and so at the same time there's deep beauty on both ends like to have the embodied experience. And if it starts to veer into the shadow, lean into the meditation practice to come up and out and gain that perspective. Mm -hmm. And then as you anchor into that perspective, then really coming home into the heart because the elevator goes up, but it has to come down too. We've chosen to incarnate into form. Yeah. So just the perspective that you're bringing on that feels so powerful. And then, then bringing in the open heart, the journey of the open heart, really what that is, is to walk with your heart wide open and being willing to feel through it all. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not that like, there are moments where we have to close, we have to rest, we have to, we have to create a boundary, right? That's the wisdom of discernment. When we discern, um, if we need to essentially pull ourselves back or contain ourselves in a particular way. So I just don't want it to be misconstrued necessarily because it's another shadow in the space of love and the space of the path of the heart. It's just like heart open all the time, just feeling it all just, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God. So this, this, that's a different extreme, right? So I actually looked at the, the Buddhist because Pema children write so much about the heart and about cultivating compassion and, but with a real equanimity so that it's not, um, that stereotype of just like a bunch of people just, Oh my God, just going into all the feeling and just for, with no bounds and with no discernment and also with no missive as to where that energy supports the greater whole. Mm. So I really love the Buddhists, especially Pema children has written so much about how the cultivation of the open heart and compassion and our ability to be with our own suffering and the suffering of the world helps us to show up to the world, helps us to feel each other so that we don't, we can break down the walls of separation, culture to culture, race to race, country to country, et cetera. So a place that I feel is, is important for anyone on the spiritual path is that place of where does my practice, my personal practice 
intersect with a collective understanding. Mm-hmm. And so am I just opening my heart just because I can feel pleasure and love all the time? There's nothing wrong with that. And can I do it in a way that helps me to be a person that walks with greater empathy and compassion on this planet? And my presence helps to break down walls between different um, separation or or illusions of separation. Mm -hmm. And that's where Mm -hmm. I look at it as a a little bit of a place of of maturity on the spiritual path where uh, you're like, okay, I'm having fun doing all this juicy opening, uh, especially if you're a woman coming into juicy opening pleasure practices. And now I am seeing, okay, that's great. And I can use that in my practice at home with my lover, with myself in this really specific way. And now that I have an open embodied clear vessel, now what do I do? How do I show up and be of service from here? Right. Yeah. 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 There's an infinite number of up levels along the journey of up leveling the way we interact in any way. And I'm curious what that's looked like for you. So like, do you have, can you kind of paint the journey for us? Mm. Because your embodiment, what I witness, you know, as your friend as well, and being with you through moments of what, what could create a deep contraction or what, Mm. you know, really hard circumstances and just witnessing hard, you know, and I'll let you share as much as you feel comfortable sharing, but the way that I've seen you navigate circumstances that would really shut the majority of human beings on this planet down Mm. and the way I've witnessed you open into them really tells me that you've been through a series of initiations, which the nature of an initiation is that it's an experience that you go through that on the other side of you're never the same again. Mm. It's a totally, you know, caterpillar to butterfly type of Mm. initiation. And in order to hold the space and write, write, in the way that you do around mm-hmm. walking with an open heart, it can sound so cliche, right? Like we talk yeah. about, you're writing on subjects that are like, when it comes to the open heart, that language is used a lot. Right. And so when we use the language around like, oh, keep your heart open. But yeah. Just walk with an open heart. Right. Oh, you have such an open heart. Like, what are we, let's get real. What are we yeah. actually talking about? And that you nailed it. It's keeping your heart open, usually in the face of massive suffering and pain. Yeah. You know, like keeping your heart open is easy if it's a beautiful moment in life. It's a beautiful day. You're having fun. You're feeling good. Well, of course, it's not a problem. But keeping our hearts open when we're going through, like you said, intense suffering, that's the practice. That's where the rubber hits the road. And like you said, that's where most people, not most, maybe I'll be a little bit more generous, where many people would shut down or close off, um, pull themselves away, which is also okay. You know, some of that is, is, is the best response that some people know how to do. However, the problem with that, and it's an unconscious response to pain is that it can take a lot of work to reopen. Mm-hmm. And it, from a trauma informed perspective, that would be, um, a response like say, let's say, well, I'll take it out of the spiritual languaging for a second and take it more into like the a nervous system or trauma response where something hurts and it's hurts pretty bad. It's at, it's at a high level. And so there is a response to potentially freeze, to potentially fight, 
to potentially get the hell out of there, et cetera, um, which I'm sure your audience understands. So the problem is that when those uh, reactions or responses are unconscious and they happen over time, they really create these deep imprints. So when we start to cultivate awareness on the path, either mentally through talk therapy or more spiritually, like perhaps in a, in a mushroom ceremony or something like that, when we begin to cultivate awareness, wow, I feel how I shut down or I feel how I, I shut down during some trauma in the past, mm -hmm. then it takes a lot to um, open those places in our being. It's not overnight. It's not one ceremony and the pattern is gone. I'm yeah. sorry. It may feel like that, but um, it's likely the groove is still there. It's going to be a practice. It's just like if you hurt your knee in a skiing accident, you're likely going to have some pain every once in a while. You may have to give a little bit more care to that place. It's not going to just like go away forever, likely, right? Of course, there's always exceptions to everything. But with the heart and looking at it in this spiritual context, it's like, so if I've if I'm used to closing my heart when things get painful, the problem is that it may be really hard for me to actually open my heart when I do want to open to love. And maybe my heart only opens this much because it's so used to self-protection. Mm -hmm. So when we come into the awareness of our patterns, how we open, how we close, why we closed in these different moments in our life, we can understand it from a trauma-informed perspective, from also a nervous system perspective, and also a spiritual perspective, right? So that we have a holistic view. And then we can we can take into consideration, okay, cool. Now I know how I close and I know how I open. I may just open past my trauma patterns when I'm dancing to incredible music and I'm with my friends or I'm on mushrooms, right? <laughs> and but what happens when I got really hurt when I get really hurt, when someone I love rejects me, when I feel deeply ashamed, you know, those are the moments where we have to say, could I, could I keep my heart open, even though I got really rejected? Mm -hmm. However, it's very nuanced because you don't want to do that with, let's say someone who's being abusive or maybe someone who is um, mean to you on the bus or at TSA, you may choose in that moment, you know what? I'm not going to reopen my heart to this person, but I am going to go now into the bathroom and reopen my heart for myself mm. because someone just said something really unkind to me. My heart slams shut, mm. which feels like a response in my body of everything becoming tense. My breath becomes shallow. I can no longer feel compassion, love, or empathy. So I don't need to reopen my heart necessarily always to the person that hurt me, but I do need to like say, go sit and do a practice, have an emotional uh, response or have a place of emotional release or talk to someone I love or something like that instead of clamp and clench and pretend it didn't happen and create a deeper groove in the pattern of your closure. Mm -hmm. So it's very nuanced in a way because it's like, it's like, and this is where awareness is really important. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have an awareness practice, if you haven't sat in any therapy or meditation or self-exploration from a very mental perspective, then you may not be able to process um, these patterns. You want to be able to have both, like to be able to see all oh, the patterns happening. Mm -hmm. Ooh, this is what I do when 
I get upset when I get scared. This is what I do. You want to have that mental awareness and also to be able to feel, oh, I feel this is what's happening. <gasps> my heart is starting to feel like a fist is in my chest. Oh my yeah. God. My, you know, so that once that physiological response starts to happen as well, you can slow it down over time and you can notice so that the habit doesn't become more deeply ingrained. Mm. Instead, it starts to become unwound. And I mean, it is, it's a, I work in practice one-on-one with people. I've studied a lot of trauma-informed care. I've studied nervous system work. I've studied depth psychology. I've studied a lot of different things. And so it's, it's, it's definitely complex and it, and it does, there, it's like different streams coming together. There's like the deeply spiritual, the deep shamanic. And then there's also just like the really um, basic understanding of how trauma works in the body and the nervous system. And I'm not saying that every moment of a heart shutdown is trauma. However, most people on the planet have experienced some sort of trauma that has likely created um, some grooves in the way that they respond to especially love and connection and attachment theory is another beautiful place of understanding. Um, because again, our heart is how we attach and love to other humans and that axis of trust and, and, um, connection. And so if we've had a lot of, uh, pain or rupture, uh, with our primary attachment, uh, caregivers as children, et cetera, there's going to be even deeper groups there. So Oof. Um, I know on the top level, it's like open heart. Yeah, cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> Underneath that, it's like, there's a lot of reasons why yeah. um, it's complicated to open our hearts sometimes. And and one other thing I'll say, is like the asking yourself why, like for me, why I started doing a deeper level of this work. I've been on my spiritual path for a long time, started with plant medicine in my twenties, But the reason I kept going deeper with this is because I wanted to be in a healthy partnership. And I realized that I could be beautiful, empowered, spiritual, sexy. I could heal through my, you know, my root chakra and my sacral and my power center and all this stuff. But if I didn't heal in my heart, I wasn't going to be able to have a healthy, stable, secure relationship with another human. And that was a huge priority and is a priority for me. And so that is what made me willing to go further on the journey of healing and understanding around all of this. It's a good motivator. Totally. Um, That's my selfish motivator. Yeah. Well, it's nice to have a motivator when it comes to the journey of healing the heart, because it can hurt like everything you just named. You know what it's, it's, it's like, we're talking about it right now, but the moment when you have to be about it is the moment that you're up against some of the most, like, that's where the, some of the most painful experiences of the human condition are held. The unlocking of feeling, you know, your heart, the heart is closing, you know, because it's going into protection from feeling a feeling that you don't want to feel, you know, and so there's a willingness here through the multitude of different pathways that, you know, you're naming Alexandra with it's the, it's the intersection of where aware consciousness awareness, you know, work on the cognitive mental understanding level of why am I closing my heart? Is there really ever a good reason to close my heart? Mm -hmm. I love that what you said, you know, the example, um, in the airport, like, 
you know, maybe there's a good reason to protect my heart in this moment from this person who doesn't feel safe, but is there ever a good reason to keep my heart closed? No, I'm going to go in the bathroom and do what I need to do to open it while also recognizing that's not always the easiest thing. So we're talking about the intersection here between the understanding, like how to open your heart again is like, why did I close it in the first place? Bringing understanding to that part while also the like somatic experience of being willing to feel at the level of your body, the feeling of rejection, the feeling of being persecuted by the airport person, the feeling of being judged, the feeling like those are feelings that do not, that literally don't feel good. And so it's like, there's a nervous system capacity that we get to grow over time so that we can even trust ourselves to believe that we could potentially hold ourselves through that feeling that perhaps the past version of ourself didn't have the nervous system to really totally. Yes. This happened to me this week when I was seeing my parents. Um, I totally shut down when one of my parents said something to me and I noticed, and I went into a state of hypo arousal, which is a freeze where I essentially pulled my heart back and I like became vacant. This was my, one of my childhood tactics of, okay, if you guys are going to be mean to me, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to go away. You don't get to know me. You don't get to feel me. And I noticed it happening. And, you know, I'm an adult now. I've done shitload of therapy and (laughs) ceremony and all that. I mean, so I've noticed it happen. I went, oh, I just went into full shutdown. And I'm like, huh, it doesn't happen so much anymore, actually. The pattern that comes up in my relationship now is a little bit more the opposite, which is a little bit more of an anxious pattern Uh versus this, which would be more of a little bit more of an avoidancy. Totally. So that's only one. That's just one frame. But um, I was like, well, I haven't haven't felt this in a while. And I was like, okay, I could sit here and this in this childhood response that I'm literally, I just became a child because I'm with a parent and they treated me in the way that, you know, and I was just like, nope, pattern break. And I turned to the parent and I said, Hey, why did you just say that to me? That felt awful. And I, and I said, I noticed myself completely shut my heart off to you. And just so you know, my whole life, every time that you've said something snide or sarcastic to me, because you're not able to say what you actually need. And so in retrospect, you give a sideways jab. Every time you do that, I pull my intimacy and love away Wow! because it feels so unsafe and unkind to my heart. And I was like, if we want to repair our intimate, our connection and bond further, like, you can't do that to me anymore. Wow. And I've had, oh God, I've had years of parent yeah. therapy. Like, oh my yeah. God. So <laughs> yeah, but oh. still like, but it just like honor. I'm sure everybody listening can really respect what it has taken in order for you to arrive into a place that you could not only speak that, but track that, hold yourself and then also speak with, it's like this the the place where compassion and ferocity meet. Yeah. Passion and truth meet. Like I really felt that balance in your expression where there's yeah. there's a boundary, there's a strength in that. And for for everyone listening, y'all know I love to bring the energy of ceremony into the the dojo podcast field. So wherever you're listening, like Alexandra and I'd love to invite if we have ideas for practices that anyone listening mm-hmm. could 
could employ. There's one coming to me now. You know, if you're in a space after this, after listening to this, where you want to create an embodied practice for yourself to actually practice the energy of we can do ferocity on its own, like bring jaguar mm-hmm. energy, bring tiger energy, bring lion energy, right? Bring killer energy, bring whatever that that fiercest energy. We can do do that on its own, right? We can practice that. We can mm-hmm. embody that. And then we can embody compassion. We can embody great mother energy. We can embody the, the energy of the healer, right? Mm-hmm. This like, oh, unconditional love, unconditional acceptance. Like I know your heart, even when you're not in it kind of energy, but to actually merge those two in a practice where you're embodying the ferocity of the, the jaguar and then embody the frost, the, the compassion of the mother. And then what happens when the mother and the compassion and that universal love actually meets the ferocity of the Jaguar? How does that live in your body? Does your nervous system actually have the capacity to flow both of those energies at once is the question. And I know for myself being in the practice of actually blending some of these archetypal energies Mm -hmm. in practice. That's what practice is for. So then when you're Mm -hmm. on the field, when you're actually in the game, the practice yields itself to a moment like the one you're describing, where even in your reenactment of it, I'm like, damn, I could feel the way that you were able to flow and alchemize two very different energies there. Yeah. And with an, with an active trauma response, which is where life, it, where things get a lot more tricky yeah, because totally. when you're practicing at home and you can totally practice and flow between all these different energies and it, it's yeah. really good, like Zahra is saying, it's really good for you to do that mm-hmm. so that you know what it feels like because it's a shift in the way that you speak and your body, et cetera. And when we are dysregulated, it's like, it's like, what's the word? Um, what's the phrase I'm thinking of? It's just like anything goes like everything goes. It's like when we're dysregulated, uh, the capacity to see ourselves from above while we're dysregulated and go, Oh, wow. Huh. I'm dysregulated. Look this with my partner. When I, we, when I get dysregulated, which is another word of potentially saying triggered, but when I get dysregulated (laughs) with him, 99% of the time, I cannot get above and have the clarity to go, oh, I could make a different choice right now and pattern break Yeah, because the stakes are so high for me because I love him so much because there's so much because he's the closest person who's ever been in besides my parents and, and in partnership and friendship is very different in terms of the levels of intimacy or the, the type of intimacy. And so I was able to do that with my parent because for many years we've been rupturing and repairing and processing and growing together. And this parent has been through a lot of therapy, has a great spiritual understanding. So there's a certain level of of deep trust there. Also, it's a parent. So they're probably not going to just leave me and say, I hate you, I'm never going to speak to you again. With the partner is so different because it's like, I'm dysregulated by something you did. I'm deeply uh-huh. triggered. Uh-huh. And um, also I may lose you. Like there's this, I yeah. may lose you in the field if I do something wrong, if I say something. So 
it's oftentimes for me, I just want people to know, just so you don't think that I'm a Jedi with a, being able to be within a trauma response or a shutdown. And I, and I use the word trauma response because between that parent and I, there is that there, <laughs> but, um, but it's really hard to be in it and to have the awareness to go. I, this could be a moment for a pattern break. Um, I could do it differently, but it does happen. Yeah. But it's for me, it's, it's definitely harder with my oh, partner. That makes so much sense. And, and I can see like, oh, this would be a great moment for me to like lean yeah. into him and love him. And sometimes I just can't budge, you know, yeah. and I, I, I'm working on it, you know, yeah. I'm still working on it. <laughs> Thank you for bringing your humanity because I know it allows all of us to relate more deeply. And that's very true. It's like the stakes feel a little higher when there's that possibility that the person might leave and we're kind of interrupting our usual pattern of how we've preserved love in the past. And I feel the vulnerability in that. And I certainly do not ace it every time at all myself either. I notice myself going to all kinds of protection patterns when I'm in intimacy with friends or partners, over explaining myself, making myself small, over efforting, under efforting. Like there's all the different ways that we utilize the superpower of our sensitivity to kind of sense into, and we project onto what we think another person who we love might love. We project what we think another person that we love might love. And if we're going to go outside of the bounds of what we imagine that they might love and go against that, we are risking something really big that ultimately, even if we do that 10% of the time, 15% of the time in any relationship, I think if you do it once in a relationship and then that person actually receives your boundary receives your reflection, receives your feedback, and they don't threaten to leave or they don't, they actually further affirm, oh, I want more of this from you. For me, that's been like the biggest deepener of seeing relationship because I'm like having a fucking panic attack that I'm about to like do this thing that they might leave me for. And right. then I, but it's my truth and I own it. And I feel my, my, even though I'm dysregulated, I, it's like those, those occasions when I just speak the thing or set the boundary. And usually it comes with a little flavor of whatever my protection is over explaining, trying to pass right. across, you know, while I'm actually still doing the thing. So it can always be up, up leveled, you know? Right. And I just want to say, wow, to to be on the other side of that and gift someone who's setting a boundary, who's speaking a hard truth, who's bringing a reflection that takes courage with the power of your stay is like such a gift and intimacy builder. And maybe that increases the frequency of those types of interactions from one time to three times to five times to, oh my God, that's just the norm in this friendship now. But like when we're talking about familial patterns or the types of dynamics that romantic partnership brings up that is literally directly correlated most often to our familiar patterns, like that is the ultimate, like that is where it's very specifically in the romantic frame. I feel like, I mean, best friend, friend frame too. Like that's, that's real tough, especially when it's hitting those familial wounds. So it's actually something I've never talked about before. I have in therapy. Uh, <laughs> and my 
And we've, because we've debated about this in therapy because I'll bring in, I'll be like, well, with my friend, it's like this. Uh And we have deduced in therapy that it's not the same. That Uh my, that I cannot compare my ruptures with my girlfriends Uh Uh um, or guy friends, whatever, to my ruptures with my partner who physically enters my body sexually, who sleeps in the same bed with me, who potentially you know, would live a long life with me. Though I often make the comparison. I'm like, okay, well this, so I have this one friend and here's what she does Uh when I get upset. (laughs) Here's what she's learned to do when I get cold and hard. She's learned to like tickle me. Yes. Yes. And I'm like, oh my God. Why can't you do that? Yeah. I'm like, why can't you do that? Okay. That does not work. It's not working. Got it. And it's interesting. For me, and also my part, every every relationship is so unique. Every partnership is unique. And, you know, my partner and I's uh, attachment patterns and, you know, all all of that is unique as well. So I don't want to say across the board that that wouldn't be the same. But I will, I do want to say like that this is something I talked about on a podcast with a dear friend of mine who's been my best friend for 20 years. And we've had some like super gnarly times and some super gorgeous times. And she's a, a psychotherapist in California and she went to CIIS and she does all the map stuff. I mean, she's amazing. Anyway, she said something on my podcast that I found to be so potent, which is that friendships or any relationships that don't have a rupture and repair cycle are fragile. Mm-hmm. And it really made me think, huh, like this is a skill that we aren't taught. We aren't taught how to have healthy conflict. We are taught mostly how to avoid conflict, which creates those patterns of shutdown, creates the people-pleasing, the overgiving, the fawning, all the crap that we all do to avoid conflict because we're never taught how to have healthy conflict, especially as women, we're likely taught how to avoid conflict at all costs to keep things sweet and nice and docile and all of this. Of course, we're, we've recovered from that and we've recovered our capacity for conflict. But when you were talking, I was remembering how we have had some ruptures, um, not huge ones, but how you're so good at rupture and repair. Like you're really good at it. And like, and I remember my kind of like pattern of being cold and a little bit hard came forward. And I felt fully avoidant in that, um, in, in, in a conflict we had or a misunderstanding, or whatever. And you yeah. called me forward so beautifully into rupture, into repair rather. Mm-hmm. And it was such a beautiful process, which made me trust you, even though I don't need to see you all the time. You could be traveling, but those moments where we ruptured and repaired created a trust that you can't buy. A thousand percent. And I think everyone needs to to be aware of that that is actually an asset to any relationship mm-hmm. is the capacity to have healthy rupture and repair, which is, you know, coming from a psychological kind of an understanding. But um, it's something that I've continued to normalize for myself and in my friendships. And maybe in the LA people, everyone's having nonviolent communication processing sessions all the time. <laughs> That's powerful though. It takes the courage to bring it forward, you know, and because in that action, you are risking the potential that the the party on the other side will not be able to either hold or move forward with the repair part of the process. So it's almost like you have to like permeate the possibility of the loss in order to receive the next level of the love, which is such a part of life. Like, I feel like 
geez, you know, and it's so central. This is just, it's, it's like the Holy grail of relationship is the, the security that comes through moving through insecurity. Yeah. Another thing I want to say just about that process that I had with you is that we have something similar where we're able to really discern and define the ways that we, um, show up in terms of our patterns in ways that we would like to work on. A lot of people that I've ruptured with will not take responsibility for the pattern. They will, they don't have the vision or the foresight to go, wow, I, I overfunction or I overgive or I fawn or I, uh, I shut down or I shut you out or I flood you or whatever. Um, and I, when we had this experience, we were both able to track ourselves. And I was able to say, yeah, I went really cold. I got overwhelmed. Yes, I got, I, I was, I didn't feel hurt. So I, I, I shut down or whatever. And you were like, that and triggers I, my anxious attachment yeah. system. And then I want to like overperform and over right. and like, exactly. Try to, you know? And then it's like, wow. As soon as you can just open the gateway of total ownership and responsibility and see where you're dovetailing with the person that you love, you're like, all there is left is compassion. It's just like, it makes me so happy because I think that it would be great for everyone listening. Just get a sheet of paper and write down your bullshit, write down the <laughs> things you do. Like whether it's, I go cold, I get, I go, I get, nervous and I over whatever. So you know what the things are that you do and you don't have to get defensive about them. You're, you can sit in a moment and just be, be neutral towards them. Like, Oh yeah, that's the thing I do. Uh, I think most adults are still really scared to own that, to own the things, to own those patterns, to be able to say to a friend or a lover in a hard moment, Wow, I I can be a real cold bitch sometimes. <laughs> it, that's it's so true, and it's it's its own pattern because the resistance to owning your mistakes, to owning your blind spots, to owning yeah. the pattern itself, the the pattern of resisting that ownership is a pattern of protecting from being rejected. If you get it wrong, if you mess it up, if you're misperceived. Yeah. Or you look like you're a bad person or something. Yeah. There's a quote in my book that I love from my first book that says, um, a woman unafraid of her shadows radiates light. Yes. And I feel that, uh, in both of us that we're not afraid to go, Hey, this is my shadow. And it makes us more powerful. That's not only we do it, but it's powerful. Yeah. To go, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed yeah. that sometimes I'm anxious. I'm not yeah. ashamed that sometimes I'm cold. I'm not ashamed that sometimes I'm this. And I can look at you to your face and say, like, yeah, I know that about myself. And I track yeah. it. And I, I some, sometimes it comes out unconsciously. And I'm so sorry, you know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the way of the open heart. Yeah. The yeah. embodiment of it, you know. And <laughs> I you. think. As we're, that's such a, a beautiful way to even close this episode is just the circle around of you no, know, it's like circumstantially, whether it's with a parent 
whether it's with your friend, whether it's in, in romantic partnership, which, you know, the romantic partnership might be the gauntlet. You know, we need to practice and train for that when we're afraid to lose the one that we love, you know, like that's kind of the family of origin. It's interesting that the family of origin kind of is the seed part that then reenacts itself in the romantic relationship. And it makes it even a little scarier sometimes, depending on your relationship with your blood family, because that it's, it can be perceived as more fragile is like, Oh, this person's totally sovereign. We're not connected by blood. Wow. And like what it takes to keep your heart open in every one of those scenarios. And earlier in the episode, you laid it out so beautifully at the level, at the psychological level, at the somatic level, at the spiritual level, at the level of attachment system. There's like so many things happening all at once. And I feel like you've brought so much compassion through your humanity, through the experience of your humanity Mm -hmm. and the way that your own nervous, like I got to experience firsthand in the experience that you named both of our nervous systems and our levels of awareness kind of meeting the number one willingness to open our hearts to one another. And when you really open your heart to someone, you're saying, come in here, all of, all of what's here. And I'm going to feel all of what's here with you without leaving anything out. And I, that's, that's kind of the courage of walking with your heart open and feeling it all is we're willing not to leave it all, anything out. Right. And you don't do that with everybody. I just want to say you do that with a few people you trust. Yeah, you know? that's true. And how do you, you discern? How do you like, how do you personally discern? <clears throat> Is it just like a, a one step at a time thing? Or are there indicators that help, you know, for individuals who are in that process of discernment for yeah. themselves, how would you support someone in discerning? Like, where it is safe to kind of take that risk of yeah. that conversation. I had a friend who's one of my best friends now, but asked me this like five years ago or so when we were just being friends and there was some rupture, you know, there was some conflict that I, that we were addressing. And he was like, how do you know, like whether you want to go deeper and like work this shit out or turn away? And I was like, you have to go with your gut and you don't always know for sure. But like with him, he's one of my best friends. Like I knew I'm like, we get, we're old karmic. We've known each other a long time. So we're going to work this out. And we did. And I healed through some of my attachment wounding with him, which is the opposite. It was like, I was becoming very anxious because he was, um, avoid more in the avoidant position at that time. And so I was more, and so, and then it perpetuated the dynamic which is so fascinating. And eventually we healed it. We healed it. And it was pretty amazing. I didn't take it personally if he didn't text me back or whatever. Okay. Yeah. But to answer your question, I think especially nowadays with the internet and the, the amount of connections we have, we have to really, there's research that's been done on this. I actually did a solo podcast about this. That's coming out soon about like how many friends can we actually have at depth and where we act, where we create a level of depth where we can be held by them. And there has been scientific research. I don't look at that as the end all be all of anything, but I do feel that it's important for us to all feel our capacity, uh, your capacity to just walk life with an open heart and treat everyone with love and compassion. is one thing, your capacity to invite someone in deeply 
to mm-hmm. dance with you in your deepest wounds. That's a whole nother bag of chips, you know? And so that I'm like, I don't have that much because what happens is then I got to process that shit with everybody. <laughs> so anyone who we invite in so deeply, we have to be willing to sit in the process around, you know, are we activating each other? What what needs do they have? What needs do I have? How often do they want to communicate? What happens when we have a conflict? How do they react? What do they need? What do I need? And I think, especially probably if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a lot of people around and it can feel like the more the merrier. I'm at this place in my life where I don't necessarily feel the more the merrier. I I definitely love expanding connections, but I want to make sure that I have enough that are at the level of depth that I can get really real with. I almost said weird, but I meant real. Can I can get really real with it? Yeah, both. And, And create a lot of intimacy and trust that builds over time. And, uh, and that's a toughie because we're, we've got a lot of friends, right? And it's, but I do feel the pull nowadays for quantity and just meeting me more and more people. But I think we need to have that inner circle of the people that we can, we can rupture with till the cows come home and we'll keep repairing. And if we call them and say, I need you to get on a flight and come here, they would. Yeah. And for me, it's like, I need to keep touching base with how are those relationships doing yeah. last, you know, I moved to Boulder to be with my partner, but most of my primary friendships are in uh, New York and LA and spread a little bit now. And last year I made it an effort to see all of my best friends twice a year, twice in the year, which meant a quite a bit of traveling. And that was the minimum to, to keep the intimacy strong. And even that it's not a terribly, a lot, a lot of contact, but then also we have FaceTime calls that we put on the calendar, et cetera. Um, if I had turned my awareness to only the new friendships in Boulder, then I wouldn't have the people that I can call when I'm in my full dysregulation, crying on the floor (laughs) kind of a moment. However, on the flip side, I met you and I was going through the loss of a pregnancy and I didn't have any other option except to lean into completely new friends here in Boulder. And I needed them and I needed support during that time. So that level of um, need thrust me into friendships that um, I have now. So I don't know, like everything, there's nuance to how much, what our capacity is, what our needs are. Um, I just ask, just ask yourself, are you going deep with a few people, you know, go deep with a few people, make sure you're rupturing with a few people and repairing often, <laughs> uh-huh. and then have a thousand friends have fun. You know, yeah. for me, it's over with too overwhelming, but <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, that all totally makes sense. And I resonate with it, you know, bless the ones that you can really call when, when you're in the heat of it, as is the nature of life through its cycles, you know, and also bless the ones that you have fun with and maybe are there when it's, when it's in the, a lot flow, but like there's a yeah. balance, there's a balance, you know, and totally. I think it's important to name that and mm-hmm. letting the heart guide. I guess there's not a formula, but I'm so glad that life guided us together in the way that it did. And totally, so you're going to be in my next book, by the way, I need to ask your permission later, but <laughs> oh, goodness. I'm excited. You'll have but to I, I wrote this story of, um, of that night where I had found out I was going to have a miscarriage and I showed up in this circle that Sahara 
called together of women and I asked for help and it was just such a vulnerable moment for me. And so I wrote a story about the vulnerability of asking for help. And um, I wrote about that. So I'll send it to you when I get a little closer into the edit. So you can let me, you can give me your seal of approval. It's only, it's only good, you know, good things. What an honor. What an honor. Wow. I love, I'm actually, (laughs) I feel so expanded. I feel so honored that Mm. I played any part in that evening. That was a really meaningful moment for everybody to receive. Yeah, that was a really special, special moment. Thank you for creating that. Thank you. I'm excited to read it. And all of you listening, I imagine after hearing the transmission that just came through that you'll be excited to read it as well. So Alexandra, would you share with everybody where they can find you and where they can stay tuned for when the book does come out and all those details? Yeah. So my first book is available on Amazon. Fuck like a goddess. Definitely. (laughs) Get it, read it if you haven't. Yeah. It's 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 great. I love it still after almost three years. So that's that's good. My podcast, holy fuck, go have a listen as well. I have also an online community that meets twice a month called Radical Awakenings, and we do embodied practice, breath, central movement, writing, coaching. And I also work with clients one-on-one and I have a deep dive mastermind group that I do a few times a year as well too. So there's different ways to engage with me. Instagram is a great way to just access what I'm doing. It's at at Alexandra Roxo, R-O-X-O. So Mm -hmm. it's all there. Beautiful. Highly, highly, highly recommend connecting with this woman. Thank you. Alexandra for for having your energy and your heart. I love you. And (sighs) to all of you listening, thank you for your presence, your attention, and the depth that you met us in today. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you all for creating this space to receive this transmission and for having the courage that it takes to live your life beyond the edge. If you feel the call to go deeper with me privately or explore the dojo ecosystem, the best place to start is by visiting zaharazimring.com and taking your free micro dojo. You can also find me on Instagram at zaharazimring and I love hearing from you guys. So feel free to send me messages, make comments, and I will absolutely get back to you. I also would deeply appreciate if this episode or any of these episodes have touched your heart, leave a review as it really supports this show in touching more hearts and more lives all around the world. Thank you for joining and I'll see you next time.